Welcome. We trust you will be encouraged by this message from Bonnie Chavda, presented by Chavda Ministries International. Real love, real people, real power. I want to invite you to stay engaged in your spirit and continue to intercede as we are around the Lord's throne tonight to touch with intercession with effective prayers tonight. And I'm so thankful for the season of fasting and just want to thank all of you and all of you who joined with us in various ways for this season of fasting. And I believe that it was exactly what the doctor ordered to get set up for a season of victorious and effective prayer for the next few weeks for the sake of the church, for the sake of our nation, for the glory of God, for Israel, for the nations. And I want to take our imagination tonight into a story in the chronicles of Samuel in the history of Israel's king Saul in a season when David had not yet come into his kingdom but Saul had been appointed and anointed by the Lord at the request of God's people to have a government like the other nations around them. So their heart shifted from a clear revelation that there was a living God in the midst of Israel. And they had seen his miracles to deliver them from 400 years of abject slavery and poverty and disease and bring them out in a single night. And though that generation immediately when they faced war, say when they faced war. When they faced war, they immediately reverted to a longing for the flesh, the strength of the flesh, the comfort of the flesh. If you remember, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness, and even though God fed them supernaturally, those initial mornings of a supply of the literal food that angels ate, <laughs> of the manifest presence of the third person of the Godhead in a cloud to keep them from sunburning and getting skin cancer during the day, and a fire to warm them in the cold of desert night, And in fact, even before the wandering at the foot of Sinai, before 40 days were out, the first 40 days, they wanted a God that their physical fleshly senses could see and touch and put their trust in. So it continues to be a problem. So we pick up this story in 1 Samuel 14 
And I'll read you this little portion in a moment, but I want to set it up because the story starts in 1 Samuel 13 and moves into 14. And this is a time, as I said, that Saul is king. God has anointed him. And he has had a decisive victory over Ammon that God declared was always going to be his enemy. So any victory, battle victory over Ammon was a significant statement for Israel. Um, and at that time, the Philistines occupied Israel. They had garrisons of Philistine encampments, soldiers in multiple places, multiple cities around Israel. And it appears from what Saul actually did with the fighting forces of Israel, it appears that Saul was of a mindset to kind of cooperate with the desire of the Philistines not to give any indication that Israel had any intention other than to allow the Philistines to occupy the land of their inheritance as long as they could stay without battle, as long as they could just keep to their own spaces. And it's really interesting. This is the Iron Age. And Israel had inadvertently, maybe they didn't realize it, but they had returned to a type of slavery almost like they were in Egypt. As the mining and, and smelting and, and uh, crafting of iron had come in as the technology in that time, the Israelites were allowed by the Philistines to be blacksmiths. In other words, to be artisans who would use this new amazing technology, iron, instead of wood or flints for arrowheads and, you know, things like that. Now we have iron to make farming tools, to make armaments for battle. And the, the Philistines allowed the Israelites to be the craftsmen of those things, but they were restricted on how many farming tools they could own themselves, and they had to pay dearly for them, and they were absolutely forbidden to own any weapons of warfare. Only the Philistines could have free reign of those things. And Saul, their king, appeared to be going along with all of this. He didn't want to stir up any trouble, even though the garrisons in 1 Samuel 10 were stationed all throughout the land. And the Israelites were heavily restricted for possession and use of any of the Iron Age technology. So, in spite of this oppression, and in spite of the clear anointing, literal supernatural favor and empowering by the Spirit of God that was on the king, Saul dismissed a 
army that was 330,000 troops strong. And he kept 3,000 men. And it, I mean, from any military strategy. One of the reasons this story, I feel like, is timely for the watch. I hope you can hear or see little imagery in it. Because, friends, what America is experiencing with her top command, both in administration, in the State Department, and in the Department of Defense, we can find ourselves in the shadows of these very kind of events. And for me, the Word of God, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, helps me get strategy, get light, get understanding about how to weigh the events of our day, and then, therefore, how to direct our prayers. And as much as that is important, it also helps me to put a compass to my heart when it seems murky. And you're trying to discern what is good, what is right, which way to go, how do we pray. So I'm submitting to you tonight what I believe is a ready opportunity to get wisdom from the Lord by learning from the history of Israel and likening, being able to see the comparison of some of these things. So number one, we see this king who wants to cut a deal with people who are essentially terrorists. And so he cuts down his troop force, foolishly, deliberately weakening Israel's possibility of not only advancing to possess their own inheritance, but even defending themselves. However, we know that that king also had a son named Jonathan, who was a, a different spirit. And in fact, Jonathan, much like David, who came to the kingdom, must have had a discerning heart because he discerned where to stand, where to refuse to give ground, and even what was a righteous decision in certain times that would have been the fog of war. So when his father weakens Israel's defenses, Jonathan retains a thousand men and decided that he's going to attack an entire garrison of the Philistines who have occupied a particular region and drive them back. And it will very likely incite possibly an all-out war with the Philistines. And if you remember what Jonathan does... He and his armor bearer set out secretly, and he prays before he goes, and he definitely feels like this is a battle that God has said, you, you fight this battle. So if you remember, he and his armor bearer, they go through a treacherous bit of terrain that in English terms, it's literally between a mud pit and a cliff. And 
they climbed the cliff. Uh, I'm thinking right now of a, a funny scene. How many of you are familiar with a movie called Princess Bride? Has anybody seen Princess Bride? Do you remember when Dead Pirate, the Dead Pirate, that's what Aaron used to call Dead Pirate Roberts because he couldn't say the R. When he was a little kid, he would dress up like Dread Pirate Roberts. But do you remember when they were scaling the cliff, right? And the, the giant scaled the cliff with two or three people, you know, hanging on him. And Dread Pirate Roberts was <laughs> climbing up right after him. So I, I think of that when I think about Jonathan and, and his armor bearer because the armor bearer would have been loaded down literally with armor climbing up after Jonathan. And they come up over the top and they put out an impossible fleece before the Lord that basically if when we get to the top, the Philistines brag about how tough they are and how easy it's going to be to take us out, that's our sign from God that he has given us the victory. And so it was two against 20. And after scaling that steep cliff, going through the mud pit and scaling up there, Sure enough, in that one little spot, they took out 20 of the Philistines in a, in a battle. But it did set, up, set off a confrontation. God is not always stepping back from confrontation with his enemies. Sometimes... He decides this battle is not the right one to fight. Sometimes there's timing. And there's always a strategy. And I think if there's anything we see about God who is a man of war, and I might remind you, the God of the Old Testament is not a different God. And in fact... The many places where we see the angel of the Lord's presence, like meeting Joshua before Jericho with a drawn sword, when uh, the angel of the Lord met Gideon in the wine press, um, or you know, threshing out the wheat harvest when the Midianites had invaded, there are multiple instances. The man who wrestled with Jacob as Jacob was returning to claim his inheritance. Those are Christophanies. They are literal appearances much like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration remember with Moses and Elijah those instances in the Old Testament are the pre-incarnate son of God the captain of hosts who would come down and meet Israel in certain times when it was time to go to war it was time to resist the enemy so as we know we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the point is, we are in a spiritual battle, a wrestling match against governmental authorities in heavenly places that have their grip and sway on human beings and institutions, oftentimes. And so it's good for us to be awakened and knowledgeable and not to go out unwisely or in an untimely manner, but literally in the anointing and strategy of God and in a corporate advance. And that is one of the things that is so important about the watch. We have spent 26 years learning together every Friday night on how to hear from the Lord 
the Lord of the watch, the Lord of glory, the victorious Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected king of the cosmos. And hear what his will is for our prayers touching earth. So we're here in the story. And this battle has been incited. And now the Philistines are coming out. They're going to attack. But the further background, very important, about King Saul is that in the immediate story leading up to this time, we find a couple of very significant events that show us the fallacy of Saul's leadership. One of them being, if you remember, Saul and the troops were summoned to Gilgal. Samuel was supposed to meet them there and sanctify that time of going out to battle with offerings made to the Lord. And they were assembled there, and Samuel didn't show up for seven days. So I guess if I were to give this story and the attempt to tell it tonight for our inspiration, a title, I would say, How to Lose a Kingdom in Seven Days, or He's Just Not That Into You, Saul. <laughs> because the first day passed. All right, second day passed. Third day passed. Saul begins to get very uncomfortable because he is used to being the man with the brass in the room. And his mindset seems to be that he anticipates that God shows up to make Saul look good and reinforce him rather than the other way around, that the king is there to serve the Lord of glory and make him look good. And Samuel is the mediator, the man who knows what the Lord is doing. And the king was supposed to be taking direction, at least from Samuel, if he was unable to hear for himself. So you know the story. By the seventh day, Saul was just way too nervous, starting to feel humiliated, angry. You know, he's been told to rally the troops, and they're all there, and then Samuel doesn't show up. And so you remember Saul ascends the altar and offers the sacrifice, offers the burnt offering. And as soon as it's done, Samuel arrives on the scene. And he tells him, tells Saul that that very presumption and the utter misperception of what his kingship means has just cost him the kingdom. Now, can you imagine? I know that. The prophecies all said the kingdom would come through David's seed. We know all of those things were true. 
But this is the interesting thing about the prophecies of God in the Old Testament. And this includes that obscure one in the Psalms that talks about the very companion of the heart dipping the bread in the salt and then betraying what appears to be the prophecy about Judas. That prophecy didn't create what Judas did. What Judas did was the thing that was going to rise in Judah. It could have been anyone. And this is the wisdom and, and majesty, the incomprehensible way that God is. But literal, in pure innocence, if you will, the Spirit of the Lord prophesied that event in advance before it happened, but the prophecy didn't cause that event. Are you with me? That's real prophecy. That's real prophecy. And there is a stream in it that is so pure and so powerful. That's real prophecy. Well, in the same way, we don't know. God Is God able to do just about anything? Work just about anything out, you think? Right? Well, all of those prophecies about the one from David's line would sit on the throne forever... Those all came because of these very events that would unfold and ultimately come to Jesus through David's line. So that's, that's for free. That's for free about the mysteries of God's prophecies in the Old Testament. Anyway, so the Philistines are stirred up now. It's like Jonathan and his armor bearer poked the nest. And now they're, they're mad. And Israel's weapons and fighting force are greatly diminished. So this is a no-brainer. I mean, the Philistines already have everything locked down, kind of like Afghanistan under the Taliban. And so now is all they have to do is just kill all the soldiers and terrorize everybody and take away what few farming instruments they have and so on and so forth. And they're back in total control, no problem. Because, of course, they outnumber and outclass the Israelites. So the few Israelite soldiers that are remaining are frightened, and Saul seems paralyzed. At the same time, these various garrisons of Philistines are sending out raiding parties, terrorizing everything. So there is destruction and havoc. And again, if you look at this story and just read the words and think of all the scenes that we're seeing these last few weeks on our televisions from the events unfolding in Afghanistan and then all of the wrangling and infighting and refusal to take accountability and be up front. You know, the DOD says it was the State Department. The State Department says it's the DOD. And if you watched any of the congressional hearings with our top military brass being asked very direct questions, there was very little willingness to give direct answers. And I'll just say for me personally, but I have a certain sense, and I'll just say this to you bluntly. I felt like 
that was kind of a straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, in terms of a new vehemence on some of our directed prayers in the watch. Because we have been patient and continued inch by inch to step back, be quiet, cooperate, and at the same time have continued to watch too many who are in power and have great influence over our lives make the wrong decisions for the wrong reasons to the harm of the poor, of the weak, of the naive, of our children, our grandchildren, and I feel like the Lord started rustling in the leaves of the watch. We talked about it with some of the watch leaders in the weeks leading up to our fasting time, that the fast was to set aside a time much like David when he asked the Lord if he should go to war. And the Lord said, when you hear the troops marching in the mulberry, trees when you hear the sound then you go and I I feel like tonight for sure we are going to pray some very directed prayers to the Lord of hosts who is the captain of armies who wears those stars on his shoulders so so in our story the Philistines are sending out raiding parties and creating destruction and havoc everywhere and Saul is not inclined to take an initiative in pushing back. Jonathan and his armor bearer have done that. And as the fighting begins to ensue on that ground where Jonathan and his armor bearer have gone up, this is what happens. It's in... 1 Samuel 14, starting with verse 15. It says, And there was a trembling in the camp of the Philistines in the field, this half acre or so, where Jonathan and his armor bearer were fighting with these 20. Even in the field and among all the people, say there was a trembling. Say there was a trembling. There's a song that says something about tremble, tremble, tremble. Right? It's an old spiritual song. Or you could, I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down, tumbling down. So anyway. There was a trembling in the camp and in the field and among all the people, the Philistines. Even the garrison and the raiders, all these terrorists, trembled. And the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. The Bible is very understated. Very understated. And here's where the watchmen come in. The watchmen 
see from afar that something has begun to shake. I believe I can see something has begun to shake in terms of these strongholds that have been set and determined to wreak havoc and destruction on our inheritance. The watchmen looked and behold, they saw the multitude begin to scatter in this chaos that had begun to ensue. And they melted away. They went here and there. And probably what they were looking at is here are all these armed soldiers. And now the ground has started to roll and shake and shake harder. And these men in the rush of moving into battle now, their weapons begin to jostle and hit against one another. And confusion ensues to the point of literally using their weapons against one another. Make it so, Lord. So Saul says to his troops, something is going on over there, and I don't know who is involved, who is inciting this. So he takes a census, so to speak, a roll call, because he's probably suspicious that Jonathan and that armor bearer because he knows Jonathan has probably been bugging him, saying, Dad, is the Lord with us or not? Our ancestors told us about how the Egyptians enslaved them. This is our inheritance. What were the 40 years for? And so Saul says, take account. I want to know who's missing, who's not here. Number now and see who has gone out from us. And when they counted everybody up, sure enough, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So now remember, in terms of spiritual revelation, Samuel has already told Saul, you will never see me again. So now the only thing that Saul has is the priest who is under his, the king's obligation and command, right? So Abijah is going to cooperate. And they've got these two supernatural attestations, the ark and the ephod, right? And if you remember what the ephod does, the high priest would wear it. The king and the high priest would go into the tent of meeting, into uh, the holy place, the priest into the holy of holies only once a year, but the pre high priest and the king. And the king would stand outside the tent and shout the question, asking of the Lord what to do. The priest would stand before the presence of the Lord with the ephod on, that had the 12 stones that were all aligned with numbers and words of the alphabet of the Hebrew language. And God would literally text the answer. And the priest would read it, and he would shout back to the king the answer from the Lord. And so Saul calls for this event to happen. He says to Ahijah, that's the priest's name, bring the ark of God. 
For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. The Philistines didn't have it in captivity in this moment. And it happened while Saul talked to the priest, and I just described to you what was going on, that the commotion of the camp from the Philistines continued. Now, just imagine. Here is Saul and the priest and the tent and the ark, and they're doing this communication to try and get from God what's going on. And in the meantime, the watchmen are like, oh, my gosh, what's happening over there? And Jonathan and the armor bearer and Saul's thinking, that son of mine, he's up in there with, you know, he started this, this ruckus. And then the, the fighting commotion grows louder and louder. So it's a very tense, it's split second. The fog of war is already starting to descend. And it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the commotion of the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. Say the commotion continued and increased. Does anybody feel like that going on? Yeah. So Saul said to the priest, enough already. Never mind. You see his tendency there. To trust in the arm of the flesh. I'm not waiting around for this. I'm going to go and do something. Whether it's either out of fear or anger or, you know, pushing back on the humiliation that the king wasn't actually in the middle of whatever was, or calling the shots of whatever was going on. So Saul and all the people with him rallied and came to the battle. So they went to engage the Philistines, and it says, and when they got there, they saw that already every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. This earthquake, this shaking, God had gone right into the middle of the Philistines who vastly outnumbered and were outarmed over Israel, and God himself was just shaking the ground. And causing this great confusion. So they'd already begun to fight one another. Turn on one another. And the Hebrews who were with the Philistines. Because there were. There was always a fifth column. Of Hebrews who chose. To side with the enemies of their own people. For payment. For safety. For privileges. For whatever. You know one of the scenarios that happened with the melting away of the 300 and some thousand regular of the armies uh, in Afghanistan, one of the things that I don't think, you know, was just in our regular psyche of the American minds is that uh, you, dear taxpayer, were paying the salaries of all of those guys. And when the money stopped, the motivation stopped and piled on the motivation to actually show up. The U.S. and all of those guys were gone overnight, literally. And from all accounts, the ones who stayed in the fight to their own peril were a lot of the more elite special forces that had more of a concentrated alignment and also, frankly, a promise from America that if 
Afghanistan, if the, if the nation fell to the Taliban, all those guys would be lifted out, which of course we know did not happen. There were, you may have seen, there was a, another plane load of American citizens who were chartered out by one of the private groups that made it to the US today. And among them were, I think, 59 children. So, it says, Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews, who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. So, this battle converges, and, you know, everything starts to rearrange and turn itself in the midst of this earthquake. And when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country all around heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in battle. So we have this situation that began with a trembling, with a shaking. Say shaking. Tell your neighbor it began with a shaking. And my prayer tonight, I believe and... In part, some of our prayer points tonight, one of our assignments is to pray regarding the looming economic crisis that would be inevitably the result of the ridiculous so-called infrastructure bill and all of the ongoing absolute mismanagement of our nation's resources that is continuing from both sides of the aisle in Congress. And that's another aspect where I feel like the Lord has given us not only permission but instruction to enter into that battle in prayer and pray in a specific direction tonight. So we are going to do that. That's, that's another one that we're, we're going to pray about. So the Lord delivered Israel that day. And yet, they still had some battles to fight. But I believe the Lord wants us to enter in to intercession for our nation on several of these prayer points. And one of the main things that stirs my heart gives me further insight and clarity on this shaking that I believe the Lord wants to come at this time, that we need not leave these things alone, but corporately and radically in the wake of our fasting, beseech the Lord for some major shifts and turns and victories in these things. One of the things that comes up in this story immediately in the aftermath, it says the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day because Saul had put them under an oath. And it's this strange thing where he says, basically, any of you enlisted men who eat today will be prosecuted for treason. 
Now, that was the stupidest thing that the commander of fighting forces could have said. Here you've got your guys who are outnumbered and outgunned, and God is showing up in the middle of the battle to give you the victory. And the king prohibits the fighting soldiers from taking any kind of sustenance that will help them stay invigorated physically. It's just dumb. But it appears that Saul, being the king, of course, he didn't have to worry about whether or not somebody was going to feed him or anything like that. He just had that bizarre mentality of using, in fact, the prophecy of Samuel at the beginning when the people asked for a king. It was one of the things Samuel said to Israel. This is what he's going to do. He's going to take your sons and daughters, and they're going to run behind his chariots. He's going to take a certain amount of all your crops. He's going to tax you. He's going to do all of this, and he's going to treat your children as if they were fodder for his purposes, whatever his agendas are. So anyway, he said, cursed be the man who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So he drew what was God's strategic plan for a nation against God's enemies and the glory of God. And Saul made it all about himself and assumed to use the people of God for those special interests or agendas and so he levied if you will restrictions on everybody according to his own political interests again for me I see the ongoing effects of these kind of things in our national politic on both sides of the aisle and I believe the Lord has said we can pray and he will hear tonight so we're gonna so none of the people tasted food and when all the people of the land entered the forest there was honey on the ground see this was a setup from the Lord God had provided something to refresh and sustain those soldiers and the king had placed restrictions that were preventing the very thing they needed in that hour of service and I'll just say the audacity of literally, intentionally restricting and withholding effective therapies against COVID from flowing into places where the administrative rulers and governors have said, we will make these therapies available and for our federal government to literally prohibit and restrict the amount of therapies those places could have to treat people is only one of the absolute inconscionable, ungodly events that is occurring. There's no science in it, but it's obviously a politic, and it's come so blatantly to the surface. I believe the Lord has also had enough, and it's time to pray. Well, Jonathan, I guess Jonathan was, no, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Okay, I'm gonna, this is in the flesh. <laughs> Lord Jesus, 
Do you know Senator Johnson on the floor of the Senate because our national media and our own NIH, the CDC, will not actually release this kind of information. Senator Johnson put forward the study, seven and a half months study, two and a half million people in England and Israel fully vaccinated and gave the specifics of the details of real science of what is happening statistically for people who are not vaccinated at all, for half vaccinated who are fully vaccinated, the Delta variant, da, 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 da. and the fact of the matter is the science is in opposition to the non-information that is not, or non-information or the information that is not being released by our, by our health authorities. For political reasons, this is unconscionable. I spent a week with folks from Europe this past week, and they were aghast at what's happening here with the overt politicization, politicization that, is, that is occurring. And saw some of the footage and the restrictions and the bizarre inequities and various different things. And they just, they were like, what is happening to America? So, the people were weary. I'm reading from the Bible now. The people were weary. And Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. And he said, look at me, see how my eyes have brightened because I ate a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. So they got a partial victory. But it was literally the politics of the king restricting the people that was preventing them from having the utter victory. We are going to pray for an utter victory tonight over COVID and other things. Are you with me? Is this boring you? Am I confusing you? I hope that this encourages your heart. So it was a defeat for the Philistines and a victory for God, but not the victory it could have been. It could have been much more decisive and what else needs to be said about Afghanistan? We heard a hundred times, if we heard it once, again, during the Senate hearings this week, that it was that Doha agreement that created the failure of the withdrawal and gave the astounding success of bringing 129,000 people, many of them unvetted, and half of that number directly to military bases across this nation. Not, no COVID testing, no vaccines, and we know from firsthand that some terrible things are happening on those bases. It's a dynamic clash of two very disparate cultures, and there are 
few, if any, restrictions, and many of those people are just walking off those bases. And officially, groups in 1,000 or 1,500 are being taken to various cities and set into housing, health care, food, clothing, all of that. Well, I don't necessarily resent that, but I resent the way this was done because it was not done properly. And all the thing about it was the Doha agreement with the Taliban that caused it. It was not, and this is the reason. That agreement had conditions. None of those conditions but one was met. And therefore, that agreement handed to a next administration had the same obligation of making sure those other conditions were fulfilled before the drawdown. But we know politics were in the way. So, those 13 should never have died. And the thousands of American citizens and SIVs that helped us for 20 years should not be under threat of their lives and already many of them executed in the days since we left. It's inexcusable. And I believe the one who flung the stars into the cosmos has landed those stars on his own epaulets and said, I'm the captain of hosts now. And I'm not giving my glory to anybody else. So we're going to stand with him tonight on his side and pray to him for our salvation and for his mercy. So I think that's my comments. You know what, I'll say one more thing because I see this happening too. This thing of blame shifting instead of taking responsibility at the highest levels indicates that our institutions have been given over to bureaucrats, people whose jobs are never at risk and who apparently have been calling the shots for a long, long time. And the only recourse, possible recourse, that we, the ones who are paying all the bills for everything, have are our elections, which also are in great question now. But one of the after effects of Saul and his reliance upon the flesh and the, and the, the strength of the flesh is that he had starved his soldiers and made them fight. And at the end of the day, when they had run the Philistines off and taken the spoil, they just started slaughtering the cattle and stuff and just eating. I mean, just eating. And of course, it, now, then Saul turns very religious. And he says, oh, you terrible people. You are violating the law of God. Stop it. Stop it. Everybody stop it. Put the ribs down. And he reverts to that other thing that he did. He built an altar and had them bring all that stuff. And it has this one little phrase in Scripture. 
said that this was the first altar that Saul built to God. It's a very strange statement there. And in fact, what it is is an indictment of saying, not only did he just go up to the altar that was built by Samuel, this time he assumed to build the altar himself. And at the same time, the Lord is looking at all of these people that have fought valiantly and that this king is using for his own political special interests. So, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, and if that weren't enough, then he turned on his own son. And the people interceded. This is another one because this is a specific prayer point tonight. If you remember the story, Saul really wanted to be able to indict Jonathan. Shows what a twisted heart he has. And so he decides to cast lots to see whose house the troublemaker came out of. When he knows, he already knew Jonathan was not in the number. This is, he's so wicked. He's a bad man. Had no value system. So, <laughs> he says, come here, all you chiefs of the people. Let's investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. They wouldn't give, they wouldn't hand Jonathan over. So he said to all Israel, you'll be on one side, Jonathan and I on the other. And so he lined everybody up and they cast lots. Saul said to the Lord, give a perfect lot. So Jonathan and Saul were taken in the lot. And then Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And the lot fell to Jonathan as being the one. And Saul said, now remember, he's doing this in front of all the people. He is blame shifting like crazy, even willing to sacrifice his own son to keep himself looking good and not bearing the responsibility. And he says, tell me what you have done. What just flashed? Guess I talked too long, burned out a bulb. Unless there's an earthquake coming. <laughs> Lord Jesus. All right, I'm almost done. 
So he says, um, tell me what you've done. And so Jonathan said, yeah, it was me. I ate a little honey with the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, according to your oath. I, I must die. And Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die. You can see Saul is enraged, and he's putting on this big show in front of the people. I just, I want to reach into the story and grab him and just grab him by the neck and shake him. But the Lord is much more able. <laughs> As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he is, oh, sorry. Um, the people, the people intervene, and they said, hold on. Jonathan, you're, you're, in, you're presuming to, to kill Jonathan, the one who has been there leading us, who has been ahead of us in all these battles, who bringing deliverance for Israel? Far be it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God for this day. So the people rose up against Saul and said, oh no. You're not, you're not going to continue to do this. And there's a couple of situations we're going to pray about that have been occurring in our nation to the valiant, some of the valiant ones that are being completely unjustly treated and threatened right now because of this ridiculous blame shifting that is going on for political reasons. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. And then... Um, I think that brings us to the end of, of our story for tonight. So we know that soon coming will be David, has a few tests to go through in his battle with Saul, and then ultimately Saul will be replaced. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Thus said the Lord, Cursed is the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm whose heart departs from the Lord. Cursed. And that verse describes the heart and the action and the character of Saul and why he is the archetype for rebellion against God. And in particular, when the favor of God has allowed this individual great power in the lives and over the resources of God's people. We remember Psalm 62, we read at the beginning of the watch. Surely men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are a lie to be laid in the balance and weighed altogether lighter than vanity. And I believe that there is a weighing in the balance of many of these inequities and injustices that the American people are being abused with. And the church is being indicted in the popular culture increasingly every day as being some kind of a cultural and political and existential threat to the well-being of our society. So, may the God, Captain of Hosts, who flung the stars across the cosmos and has given himself the authority 
as captain of hosts. Hear our prayer tonight. For the next few minutes, we are going to hit about five specific prayer points. And so I'm asking you for your openness and willingness to participate in these prayers tonight. Again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray in the quintessential biblical way is fasting. And so we feel like tonight, as the first watch night after our fast has ended, is a strategically appropriate time for us to pray some real prayers as we believe the Lord has directed. We'll pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. To order more great resources by Bonnie Chavda, visit us at chavdaministries.org. For a full catalog of our products, you can call us at 1-800-730-6264. God bless you.